Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kimathy, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey. And Tanya Ziegler, Lead of Global Benchmarking and Senior Research Associate at the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance. Hi. And welcome to the podcast. Uh, this week's episode is called Class is in Session. We're going to be talking to Tanya about the impact of COVID on the industry, regulatory response to fintech, and much more. But first up, as usual, we are doing our Week in Numbers segment. We've gone out and found stories with some interesting figures in their headlines to talk about. Uh, Tanya is our guest, so has the honor of going first. Uh, Tanya, what's your Week in Numbers story you'd like to talk so- about? So my first uh, or my number was 22 billion. Um, and this is in reference to the UK Infrastructure Bank, um, which which was allowed was announced last autumn. Um, but this number kind of reflects that maybe it doesn't have the teeth that it needs to be truly effective. With many reacting to the somewhat meager 22 billion that were earmarked for this bank in the 2021 budget, some have been left wondering if this will have the desired effect for the ambitious goals um, and intentions uh, for the UKIB. So to frame this, this figure, Treasury has placed a cap on the bank's capital for the forthcoming five years, amounting to 12 billion of public funding uh, and then an additional 10 um, in government guarantees. So though this does sound lofty, it's actually staggeringly, um, it's a staggering shortfall. According to The Independent, um, this 12 billion figure falls short of 20 billion recommended by the government's own commission. So the Office for Budget Responsibility indicated this past week that these allocated funds um, effectively are, are effectively neutralizing when considering uh, calculations um, for the UK's economic forecast. And I can keep going if you want. I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> please do. Please do. Sure. So I guess in other words, what this really is saying to us is that the OBR is noting that the bank's monetary impact is going to have little to no effect um, with kind of modest um, impact on public sector borrowing. And I think, you know, it's useful for us to contextualize the purpose, you know, of this infrastructure bank, which is going to be based in Leeds. Um, And so, you know, this has been framed by government as a way of plugging the hole that was left in the wake of Brexit, um, replacing activities that have been previously linked to the European Investment Bank. So the OBR points out that, you know, as an EU member state, the UK received um, an equivalency of around 89 billion in loans and equity from the EIB between 1973 and 2019. Um, and in the five years preceding the, the European referendum, um, the EIB had lent out an average of around $5 billion a year. So, you know, you can tell that there's a lot riding on the success of a UK infrastructure bank. And yet many, you know, have been quite critical that this budget doesn't quite uh, hit the mark. Um, you know, one one critic that, uh, you know, that, that has sort of noted this um, is, of course, Ed Miliband. Um, and I'm quoting here. He says that, you know, for far from transformative investment in infrastructure, the government's new bank won't even plug the hole left by the EIB and will see us trailing way behind countries like Germany. So, you know, the, the, the Office for Budget Responsibility has pointed out that the that our own infrastructure bank here in the UK um, is, is actually 147 times smaller than that of Germany. Um, and it's predicted that it's going to really only lend and invest around 1.5 a year. 
So that's operating at around, you know, 0.1% or point, sorry, 0.1 of our, of our GDP. So when it's all said and done, um, this is around a third of the financing uh, provided to the UK by the EIB. So, you know, although there's so many lofty goals, I think that uh, this budget has definitely left something to be desired. Yeah, absolutely. Um, plus, Labour also called for the bank to be given a watertight net zero mandate to ensure that all its investments work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And without a strong mandate, the bank could invest in high carbon activities. And I think the government really needs to think about what this bank's aims and objectives are. I mean, is it there as an environmental, social and governance bank which oversees investments within ESG for the government? Will it provide products in the ESG sector for its customers? Will it ensure it complies with um, sustainability regulations moving forward, cross-border? I mean, if it's just for infrastructure, as you mentioned, with Ed Miliband pointing out that it, in fact, does not cover a tiny amount of what the European Bank did, then it it kind of misses the mark as to what exactly its goals are. Um, And I think with sustainability, it's important as well, just because it's a huge hit at, at the moment. I mean, it attracted a record amount of capital in the first quarter of this year even as the pandemic rattled worldwide markets, global sustainable funds saw inflows of 45.7 billion. Um, and that's according to Morningstar, um, while the broader fund universe had an outflow of 384.7 billion. So it is a, a, a very attractive market. But again, in order to actually enter this, it does need to have that watertight net zero mandate. Um, but what are your thoughts, Alex? I mean, to be completely honest, you, can't, you both of you have covered that far better than I ever could have. Um, I mean, the uh, I was actually on a uh, in a meeting not too earlier today talking to students about about this, um, and there's a bit of confusion as to why the uh, the UK's uh, version has started out so small. And I think to if you're going to attempt at all to play devil's advocate for this, you'd have to say you know at least we have to start somewhere. But uh, to start. That small is is quite is is quite a start. Um, so I think that um, especially when you consider the comparisons with EU institutions, as mentioned, like Germany's KFW, I, I would try and pronounce the German, but I did it in the meeting earlier and was roundly uh, mocked for it. Uh, so I would do it here. Um, people always ask me to 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 you know speak German, and I I couldn't even I couldn't even too hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I could give it, a, I could give it a go, but I, I won't for just, just, just for, um, for the sake of my own reputation. Um, but yeah, the the German one holds half a trillion in assets, fourteen uh, percent of countries' GDP compared to you know the the the, the, the small figures uh, the UK one has. So I mean, if it's going to have any impact, there needs to be a large scaling of it almost immediately, and I think that would have to arrive in the form of next year's budget and the year after that. There would have to be announcements of fairly hefty investment almost immediately to, for this to have uh, the impact, anywhere near the impact that um, people are hoping it does. Yeah, completely agree. I, I think, you know, sort of similar, but not the same. But I think, you know, one, one other thing that I thought was really interesting about this budget is the fact that it actually doesn't even mention fintech. You know, I, I realize that that's not quite the point of the of the European, uh, sorry, of the UK Investment um, Infrastructure Bank. But it is kind of interesting that this has been linked so much with fintech and with, you know, sustainability and sustainable finance. And yet there was no mention of fintech in the budget whatsoever. No, the, that was... Uh fairly distressing for us when we reported on it. I uh, 
I was shown up on Twitter for tweeting about how everyone just control uh, uses the find function to look for fintech in the budget, and then when I did it, it did not turn up, um, which was a uh, me, uh, followed by five minutes of me hurriedly searching all kinds of financial services terms to try and get a lock in the budget somewhere. I was like, banking? No. Crypto? No. Anything? Um, but yeah, it's certainly an interesting budget. And those who are interested can go and look at our our uh, review of the budget on the fintech futures website. Um, but uh, I think we'll, we'll move on to uh, to my number this week, which is uh, $22.3 million. A um, bit smaller than billion, but uh, decent enough. This is the uh, the amount of money paid by the personal finance firm and, and super app, in air quotes, so far for the acquisition of Golden Pacific Bank Corp and its subsidiary, Golden Pacific Bank. Um, the acquisition is part of SoFi's long-standing quest for a banking license or U.S. banking charter. Uh, the firm filed for its own charter in the, with the OCC in July last year and received preliminary approval from the watchdog for its de novo bank. Uh, obviously, things were moving a little bit too slowly for SoFi, though, because now it's moved its acquisition. Oh, sorry. The acquisition has moved um, the chartered application into a much more direct route. Uh, it's switching the the, the app- application type from the formation of a new bank to the transfer of control uh, from uh, Golden Pacific Bank Corp to SoFi. So, should this be successful, SoFi says it's going to. Um, I mean, is it SoFi or Sophie? If it's Sophie, then I'm going to be I'm going to be uh, mocked all over the place. But I'm going to go with SoFi. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll decide. Uh, this is they're going to pump uh, 750 million into the new venture. Uh, the bank corp will be called SoFi Bank, um, and Golden Pacific Bank will be a business underneath that umbrella. Uh, the bank CEO Virginia Varela is staying on, and the whole thing is expected to close by the end of the year. So uh, here we have a story of a, a super app fintech deciding that the the normal rails of bank creation are, are a little slow, and deciding to splash the cash to get themselves on the board quicker. Um, usually we're more used to community and state banks in the US being partners for new challenges, but uh, perhaps this could be a taste of what's to come when more when successful payments and fintech apps grow large enough and they want to dip a toe or even a foot into full-time banking. Uh, Sharon, what do you think about this story? Um, I mean, we've seen this sort of thing before as Lending Club announced its intention to buy Boston-based Radius Bank for that purpose in a $185 million deal in February last year. And Californian fintech GECO obtained its charter in September by buying Minnesota-based Mid-Central Federal Savings Bank as well. It's also been an interesting month for M&A activity in the fintech scene as Square has bought music streaming service Tidal, for $297 million, adding the platform's founder, Jay-Z, to its board of directors. I'm sure that was quite fun for the Square team. And Orange, uh, which is France's largest telco, is seeking a buyer for its loss-making bank division, which was launched back in 2017. And the bank made a loss of 195 million euros in 2020 and has racked up 643 million in losses since it began operations. And that's again in euros. And Reuters sources confirmed that the telco was looking for a new investor to mitigate these heavy losses. And additionally, HSBC as well, uh, which has been preparing to sell its French retailing banking activities unit for more than a year, has told its employees it will act by 23rd of February according to Les Echoes. I'm, I'm pretty sure I probably pronounced that wrong. And you can sue me because <laughs> I'm sure French people hate when I pronounce things wrong. But yes, Cerberus Capital Management, which is a New York-based private equity firm, uh, has been tipped to purchase the struggling operations 
which lost the bank 499 million euros in the first half of 2020. So that's quite a bit um, of M&A activity. And it's just only the beginning of this month. Uh, we've seen so much going on. Uh, but what do you think about it, Tanya? I can see you raring to go. Yeah, I have a, a slightly different um, kind of take on, on why I think that this story is so important. Um, and that for me is just around the fact that when you think of companies, you know, like SoFi, like Lending Club, like the U.S. iteration of Funding Circle, um, this really is, you know, a, a fintech model in the digital lending space that has been traditionally or in a more orthodox conception been viewed as a, a marketplace for loans, right? Um, you know, in this case, unlike the UK's approach to peer-to-peer lending. Here we see, uh, you know, asset-backed securities um, in in the in in the form of in the form of loans. And what I find so interesting about this and and, and a number of um, you know digital lending fintechs in the United States that are moving away from the more orthodox peer-to-peer structure is that actually now they are starting to look more like um, you know banks or or at least start to look more like those incumbent or traditional models. So for me, what I find quite interesting as a researcher is you know is is how because of existing U.S. regulation and how you know and how companies like this can access, uh, you know, investor, uh, the supply of finance from from a variety of different kinds of investors. It has, in some respects, made it quite important for platforms to evolve towards uh, a more banking license, banking focused um, iteration. So I think that this is just a very cool way of, of seeing how financial technology is evolving um, far beyond the orthodox peer-to-peer or marketplace lending um, iterations that we've talked about and debated for the last six years. Oh, sorry, Sharon, I was going to let you uh, you'd segue, but you, you go ahead, Sharon, you segue, I'll, I'll back away at this point. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so my number is $170 million. As Nigerian fintech Flutterwave lands unicorn status uh, with uh, 170 million Series C funding. And could I just say, I've been seeing this narrative on socials lately that, quote, Africa is the next big thing. I mean, honey, Africa is the thing. Africa has always been the thing. So people need to read, okay? And that's why the class is in session in this podcast today. And it's not just about me reading the simpletons on Twitter and LinkedIn that post about this, okay? People need to read useful books about history to understand that Africa is where it's always been. I can recommend one. So there's Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Okay, he was a prominent Guyanese historian, political activist and academic, and he was assassinated at age 38 in 1980. So make of that what you will. But back to the story. So Flutterwave, which is a Lagos and San Francisco based payments gateway serving the likes of Uber, Booking.com, and Jumia has become one of the latest startups to land unicorn status. The five-year-old fintech closed uh, that funding this week, tipping its valuation north of one billion. And Flutterwave has raised two hundred twenty-five million, so it's one of the few African startups uh, to raise an amount uh, that is a above that two hundred million figure. And former bank manager uh, from JP Morgan and Nigeria's Access Bank, Standard Bank Nigeria, and KPMG founded Flutterwave in 2016. So the startup provides business-to-business payment services for those companies operating in Africa, and it allows them to pay other companies on and beyond the continent. So it's grown to a more than 300-person team and built its network 
up to 290,000 merchants, as well as 500,000 barter users, which is a service which allows customers to transfer money for free. And Nigeria's fintech scene has started off quite strong this year as Nigerian fintech Zend Finance, which is a decentralized financing platform for credit unions and cooperatives, topped up its funding round to 2 million as it announced a key partnership as well. Um, it initially raised 1.5 million in funding from investors, including Binance Labs, Google Developers, Launchpad, and more. Then there was Send It Money, uh, which is a mobile wallet targeting remittance corridors between the UK and Nigeria, uh, which essentially closed its funding at £175,421 uh, when its initial target was just 100000 So yeah, it really exceeded its target. And then there was Cowrie Wise, which has closed a three million pre-Series A funding round. So yeah, it's been quite busy for Nigeria's fintech scene. Um, and of course, as I mentioned before, you know, Africa is always popping. So so don't be saying that this is a, a new thing. It's always been here. Please do read a book. Uh, so what do you think about it, Tanya? Yeah, I can't agree with you more. I, I think this is like one of the biggest frustrations that I also feel when, when talking about in particular sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, Kenya brought us M-Pesa. Talk about like the the leaders in digital payments. And so it's really not even remotely surprising that the revolution starts here, you know, that, that actually you are seeing, we are tracking in our own research, really astonishing innovation in financial technology. Um, and it's not new. It's been happening. Um, so I'm really glad to start seeing the, the rest of the world catching up because, you know, when you, especially in the digital payments arena, you know, the, the region has incredible, incredible examples. Um, and, you know, we, we actually have a center uh, based in Kenya dedicated specifically to the to research um, on alternative finance and financial technology um, in the region. And it's been really lovely to see, you know, companies really growing from strength to strength and growing pretty quickly. And then to see Flutterwave kind of getting this unicorn status um, is, is quite I think it's quite important because it really does signal to the rest of the world that, you know, actually this is a hot place to be looking at and has been. And, you know, we, we need to catch up actually here in, you know, the UK and Europe. Yeah, I, I, could, I couldn't agree more as well. I mean, I think that I always remember a story of, uh, and I, I disservice the person who told me this, but it was a few years back now. And they were talking about M-Pesa and the the payment innovations that are happening in, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And they said that they had spent a month in, I believe it was Nigeria. Um, and then they came to, they came back to London for a few weeks and they were supremely annoyed that they couldn't um, book a, book a cab, pay for the cab, get out of the cab, fill up, you know, you go and uh, take some money out and buy stuff at the shop using their phone, just their phone. And they were like, why couldn't I do this? I could do this. Uh, like seamlessly when I was when I was in Nigeria. So why have I come to London, supposedly the fin- the financial hub of the world, and I can't even do any of this simple stuff? And um, yeah, I mean, Nigeria is having uh, a a great wave of fantastic fintech, especially in the paytech area. I mean, the names come to mind. We've already, the Flutterwave, obviously. Then there's InterSwitch, eTransact, Kuda uh, Bank, TerraPay, uh, all kinds. Um, and it's definitely yeah, like Sharon said, like. There's Africa is not the place that you should be looking to next. It's the place that has been leading in innovation for a very long time. Um, 
And, yes. you know, and, you know, long may that continue. There's plenty of places, there's plenty of regions outside of Europe and the US that are showing uh, the industry where uh, we can be headed to next. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, before Sharon asks her questions, however, I'm going to give Tanya a chance to introduce herself a little bit more, uh, talk a little bit more about her role at CCAF and what her day to day looks like. So take it away, Tanya. Thanks so much, Alex. Um, well, so like you've noted, I'm Tanya and I lead the kind of global benchmarking research that we do over at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. Um, our center was established in 2015 and it really, it's really now we're really, we've grown to becoming the largest research center um, within the University of Cambridge Judge Business School. So at the CCAF, um, we have a pretty clear mission, and that is to create and transfer knowledge um, to address emergent gaps in the financial sector uh, and, and, and support evidence-based decision-making. So over the last six years, we've strived to um, really develop, you know, the, to really understand the development of the technology-enabled financial instruments, channels, intermediaries um, that have emerged outside of traditional financial systems. Um, we started this journey six years ago, very specifically looking at like digital lending and digital capital raising, so the peer-to-peer -peer lending arena, crowdfunding, um, and you know, 40 publications in 185 countries later, we are now looking at kind of the full gamut of, of activities from lending, payments, um, insure tech, wealth tech. And so my responsibility at the center is to lead that market research, that industry research, um, really as a, as, a, as a public good. We, you know, all of our publications are available for free. We work with a number of different types of institutions um, and, and bodies. Uh, and we, we collect data from financial technology firms globally. So, you know, on any given year, you're looking at data from sort of around 1500 to 2000 uh, platforms um, that, that report information back to us. So that's pretty exciting. And it has allowed us to kind of understand how financial technology has evolved, um, and certainly within the context of COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. You recently published the Global COVID-19 Fintech Market Rapid Assessment Study, which observes that 12 out of 13 surveyed fintech verticals improved their customer base and transaction volumes in the first and second quarter of 2020, except for lending. In your view, what do you think could be the major drivers behind this divergence? Yeah, um, it, it's quite interesting because, well, well, first I'll say is that this is a study that we did with uh, the World Bank and the World Economic Forum. Um, and as you, you saw from the very lengthy title, and I, you know, say that five times fast, um, you know, we really wanted to do an, like a very rapid assessment, a temperature check of how financial technology has been impacted by the pandemic. And so one really good way of, of doing that assessment is really looking at those uh, performance, key performance indicators. And so in this case, we really wanted to understand those changes in transaction volumes, those changes in, in you know, in the in their customer base. Um, we we saw that, you know, 
digital payments, capital raising, wealth tech, insure tech, banking. These are all verticals that did actually see um, in, in some respects exceptional growth. Um, the only vertical that actually did contract um, against the previous year uh, is that of digital lending. And, you know, we this can be for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, certainly digital lending, you know, in many respects is pro-cyclical. Uh, and so with many businesses and borrowers facing turbulent economic times, it does make it more more difficult for them to take on additional debt. This could lead to um, you know fewer transactions overall in the space. Um, but what is interesting is that we also saw greater demand. Actually, there were there were an increase in new borrowers. Um, there was an increase uh, in in certain jurisdictions in certain countries. Um, you know, so when we think about the lending side specifically, this really can relate to you know the demand for the services, um, which which have certainly increased. But this does when you couple this with potential tightening of of supply of you know the actually supply of finance and rising cost of operations, you know we weren't that surprised to actually see that digital lending. Um, did actually contract a bit uh, in comparison to the growth that we had seen in previous years. That's sort of the the one sort of dim light uh, in what has otherwise been fairly you know f- fairly substantive growth though in other markets. For example, digital payments at a global level saw an increase of around twenty one percent. And and this you know this is likely due to a rise in digital channels for payments for payments and remittances throughout the pandemic. You know, digital payments, particularly you know, moving towards contactless um, contactless uh, payments and, and moving away from in person transactions, you know, has had an has had an effect. Um, so I, I think I've waffled a bit there, but this is all to say, you know, that that we are seeing a greater number of customers coming to um, financial technology and utilizing financial technology, but that this doesn't mean that this, that, that this has been inoculated from other, you know, other issues that, that come up with lending, especially with its pro-cyclical nature. And how has COVID-19 impacted the performance of fintech firms globally in different economies, especially due to varying lockdown stringency conditions across jurisdictions? Yeah, we we wanted to understand, you know, that fintech performance by that COVID-19 lockdown stringency. And so here we actually we leverage the Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker. Um, this is quite a cool tracker and index. They they rated countries on lockdown measures to take into account factors such as restriction on mobility, school closings, pretty much all of the things that you would consider in a lockdown. And what we do see is that actually there's a large increase in transactions, um, both with respect to volume of transactions and number of transactions that in markets that had greater lockdown measures. Um, for example, countries, you know, that had that are viewed as high stringency lockdown countries um, saw transaction volumes increase um, from 14 percent, whereas those that were in low stringency were actually, you know, more more around the nine percent mark. Um, we also saw that, you know, this is a trend that's consistent across verticals as well. So if you are a digital payments platform or an insure tech platform, um, depending on where you're based, if you're in a, a lot high lockdown versus low lockdown, you will also see that same uh, trend, that same effect 
on your growth, um, which is quite interesting when we think about, you know, lockdown has had a pejorative effect in many other facets of of life and um, certainly business life. So this has been an interesting measure, one that we want to continue looking at um, on a quarter by quarter basis uh, in our upcoming research. And so globally, what variations have been noted in terms of regulatory responses to support the growth of fintechs? Um, you know, I, what I'd say here is that fintech firms require assistance from their primary regulatory and supervisory relationships. Um, and so what we wanted to understand from this study was how that key regulatory support mechanism um, sort of has iterated under the context of COVID and you know, have firms need, what have firms needed in order to weather the storm. Um, you know, when we look at fintechs that were responding to this study, we, we saw that actually what they really are requiring assistance in are kind of core regulatory activities. These things that would relate to, you know, your customer or client onboarding processes, um, we saw firms reporting that they they actually were already able to utilize regulatory interventions related to EKYC to simplify customer due diligence, you know, to support from their regulator, from their primary regulatory relationship vis-a-vis remote onboarding. But the problem is that a lot of these fintechs are also saying that actually, no, we're not yet a recipient of regulatory report. Um in, in fact, you know, what we what we see is that the, there's a tremendous urgent need for regulatory support um, from fintechs where, you know, kind of more than half of the panel of platforms that responded to this study, you know, were indicating that they urgently needed faster authorization for new activities, streamlined products and services approvals, and, and certainly those elements that are client onboarding related or client facing, you know, simplified customer due diligence. This matters because when we think about the elements that financial technology firms have, you know, where they have proven their nimbleness has been in introducing, you know, new products and services in onboarding a number of new clients, especially retail facing clients, you know, households and consumers, um, you know, quickly. But you can't necessarily do that if you don't also have the regulatory and the supervisory r- support that you need, because these two things definitely go hand in hand. And so as as firms um, are actually being very nimble with respect to updating their products and services and adding new products and services, they also are saying, actually, hey, primary relationship, you know, we need more help. We need urgent help. Um, when we think about this in terms of that lockdown stringency, what has been interesting is that firms that are in high lockdown stringency markets actually they did report at around 21% that they were benefiting more from, you know, those interventions already happening to them. But actually a further 45% are saying, no, no, we urgently need support. So although you also see massive growth vis-a-vis the transaction volumes, vis-a-vis their ability to onboard clients, uh, you know, adjust their products and services, they also are some of the firms that really require the most assistance quickly. And we've seen that there's been limited involvement of fintechs in delivering government-related COVID-19 relief, despite their willingness. In your view, was this a missed opportunity? 
Yeah, it's a, it's kind of um, a mixed bag, I would say, because we definitely have examples, you know, in the United Kingdom, for example, where we have seen UK lending firms that have been able to participate, you know, in the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. But that's a very small number. So actually, fewer than 10% of firms at a global level have been able to function or serve in a similar fashion. And, and, and when you look at it, as related to MSME-focused relief or focused funding, um, the number is even smaller. It's really only 7% of global firms that have been able to, to kind of you know par- work in that way. What I did find quite interesting from our study um, was that, you know, in, in particular with uh, verticals that are like retail-facing, so again, lending, payments, capital raising, digital banking and savings, there is um, to date, somewhat limited involvement by those fintechs in delivering a COVID-19 related relief. But there's a tremendous willingness, like more than a third of the panel are saying they're like they would they would be very happy to and feel that they could um, participate in the delivery of one or more, you know, different uh, COVID-19 relief measures or schemes. So it's demonstrating a strong interest, but participation rate is relatively low. Now, to answer your question, is this a missed opportunity? I think that it's um, an ongoing conversation is probably the best way to frame this. You know, low uptake from sorry, low uptake from corresponding governments in positioning financial technology firms, um, you know, as delivery partners, it could relate to to broader issues that governments are facing around general supply issues. Frankly speaking, some countries just may not have the capacity or the resources to provide relief or stimulus funding. And one of the interesting counterparts has been when we look at, you know, the some of the new products and services that fintechs are, you know, positioning has actually been around hosting COVID-19 specific funding or relief campaigns that falls outside of, of government. So you do see firms actually kind of taking it upon themselves to function in that in that manner. Um, but similarly, you do have examples of fintechs that have functioned um uh, you know, in in this way with government, um, but they are firms that have reached relative scale. If you look at those that are in the United Kingdom, these are platforms that have reached a relative scale. Um, so the fintech ecosystem in general, you know, when you think about it on a global level, it's still relatively nascent and definitely still relatively nascent when you think about um, you know, emerging markets versus advanced economies. So despite a willingness to partner with government, sometimes the realities of their existing stage of growth, um, you know, might make this more difficult in the shorter run. Now, I do think, though, that, you know, as we're now in 2021, and as we see COVID-19, you know, in, in frankly, in a uh, many ways pre-vaccine world, um, I do think that financial technology firms are going to play, you know, a bigger and bigger role. And I and I think that, you know, off of the back of this research and a number of other really good research projects that have that have, you know, been in the public and private sector, I think government and policymakers are acutely aware of the value and the role that financial technology can play in in that delivery and relief mechanism. Here we are for part three for FinTech Jail. This is where we ask 
for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guest has had enough of and wants to see the back of. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in the jail, whether it deserves an extended sentence or if the person wants it to leave, then whether it should be released. Uh, So Tanya, what term do you want to see us lock away in the fintech jail this week? So my, my word is probably not as serious as some of the ones that, you know, that you guys have looked at before. Um, and it's Finfluencer, the idea of a yes. tech influencer. And I, and I should say, I need to frame this because I'm actually very like pro, you know, the learning on TikTok. And there are a number of really, really good, um, you know, and in, in, in actually female um, finfluencers uh, on Instagram to follow. Um, so this, my, my gripe is more with uh, in particular traditional banks that will utilize a more traditional influencer, but to provide effectively financial advice to their, to their follower base. And I think that that's just highly inappropriate. Um, I think, you know, it's totally fine to, you know, to signal or signpost to products that you may like or not like, but when it becomes a paid relationship from somebody who is a, you know, a, a, an influencer in another facet of life um, who does not have uh, a, a financial advice um, background or a fiduciary responsibility to provide sound advice or explain complicated financial products correctly, I think that this is where we can tread into some really dangerous territory. Um, You do see this predominantly from your more traditional credit card companies or traditional banks. It's not actually the, the worst offenders are not, in fact, fintechs themselves. Um, but I think that as social media and and frankly, you know, TikTok and Instagram becomes part of the marketing schemes that are used by, you know, by these different companies, there has to be a component that, you know, that is a fiduciary responsibility that is appropriate and measured. I mean, I... It's hundred percent yes for me. I don't. <laughs> there's, there's no. I, I can't even think of an. I mean, you, you mentioned that there are a good. Uh, there are um, good influencers who offer uh, advice to people, but I mean, I, I've when I was following the. Um, well, I suppose the still following the ongoing GameStop saga, uh, and um, looking at the the advice that was posted on. Uh, on TikTok by these people who were trading in GameStop shares and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it was it was another one of those times where I ventured onto TikTok, uh, immediately felt ancient and then left again. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, fin- <laughs> influences in most of the or fintech influences in most walks of life I find to be uh, extremely grating, um, and I have to follow a few of them because of just the, the nature of their position in the industry. But yes, I'm I'm surprised and also glad that this is the first time it's, it's turned up. But uh, Sharon, what do you think? I mean, it's a, it's a resounding yes from me. Yes, yes, and yes. I think this one gets maximum imprisonment. I think this one gets life in a max. <laughs> no one should use the term finfluencer. Number one, it's lame. Okay, like. No, don't do it. It's it's boring. Number two, like, 
again, just look at number one. <laughs> and then number three, as you mentioned, like there are so many things that are wrong with this when it comes to the responsibilities that are there, because these people who are selling these dreams um, are not actually accredited with any sort of banking or financial or wealth management background. You know, most of the people are just people who are already um, quite high on, on the Instagram or TikTok scene. And then, as you mentioned, they get targeted by, you know, like credit card companies and banks and the likes in order to actually, you know, do marketing for them. So that's the thing that I have an issue with is that it's, it's probably mostly just marketing. And then some of them do turn around, though, and say that, hang on a minute, what I did was wrong. There was a story um, on BBC a couple of weeks ago, actually, and it was about influencers. And it was one in particular who used her platform to promo Klarna. And she then um, said, you know what, I realized that it's actually doing a lot of damage after doing my own research after some time, it looks like I'm just going to be dropping the topic altogether. And then it also reminds me of Lannister um, mm. and scam thing that came across from it and all that jazz, but they were using a bunch of influencers to promote it. And loads of people were like, what even is a Lannister and why is it on my feed? So like for me, it's just max imprisonment. We do not need to see this term. And yes, there are some good ones, but they're like few and far between. So yeah, I agree with both of you yeah i, like, I think there's a there's a distinction isn't there no sorry go ahead yeah. no like that i think that that's the part that frustrates me is that there really are you know there are a handful of you know uh, individuals that use social media to really talk about um financial inclusion financial literacy and they have a you know and they and they actually also have a they're coming from a point of trust um because i think that this is also what i find really bankrupt bankrupts the the social trust side of this is that you you know we're, we're basically equating followers and we're equating you know um likes for for social trust right um and and i think it doesn't do a service for there are a number of really good um you know individuals um, Bola Sukunbi, for what, for for example, she's at Clever Girl Finance. You know, she actually talks about stuff that she understands. She's a certified financial educator. She's a money expert. She knows what she's talking about. Um, and then you, to the counterpoint of the, of the Klarna example that you just gave, and it's really unfortunate because it can really disrupt the trust that is needed. As these different products um, evolve, it also can really bankrupt um, the you know <laughs> fundamentals and financial literacy, especially for the younger generations. Um, and and that's why I think it's just so dangerous because there are great sources, and this is just not it. Exactly, and I think I <laughs> the, the the small exposure I do have to Instagram and TikTok, I do find some things incredibly funny when it comes to uh, it could be out of place. Things like uh, China, either like fintechs or banks themselves, and it's like a, an influencer on Instagram would taken a nice picture of them at a restaurant, and they just happened to be holding a card over their cappuccino. It's like this is such a weird thing to occur. Like the, I, I just don't think that financial services can be fashionable or or sexy or cool, and I think it's just a bit weird to try and make it cool in that kind of way. And I think that yeah, there's like you've said, Tanya, there's. Indebtedness. I mean, that's the part yeah. that I worry so much about too. Is like, you know, I'm obviously you can tell from the accent. I'm I'm from the United States, the country with more credit card debt than you know anywhere. And I think that that's the part that you know was worrisome. Like you, you say, oh, I can buy this two hundred and fifty dollar dress and and you know pay for it over all this 
time, but you're not really thinking about, okay, what is this going to impact? How is this going to impact my credit history? My, my, you know, my own, um, financial position in my own financial life. And that's why I think this is such a dangerous thing. Now, TikTok, though, I will I will admit, I have learned some choice dance moves. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of where my DIY and learning is probably going to remain. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Uh, thanks to Sharon and Tanya for joining me. Uh, before we sign off, though, who's got uh, some socials or websites to plug? Sharon, where can we find you online? Of course, you can find me at Fintech Kits. That's at Fintech, the way you spell it, and then Kits, K-I-T-S, like football kits. Um, you can pretty much see my rants and ravings there. There's also the Banking Technology Magazine that I'm promoting there right now. Um, it's the Women's History Month edition, and we're celebrating women's achievements in fintech, as well as highlighting some of the challenges. Um, you can also follow me for some future pics of Pandora, who is my uh, one-month-old cat right now. That's her name. She's British, short hair. She's gorgeous. Um, and she's also uh, really prone to biting right now. Um, yeah, and then, of course, hit me up on LinkedIn, as, as always. Uh, yeah, and that's me. Cool. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at adhamilton91 and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. Uh, please do check out a report recently published on the FinTech Futures website about the use of data analytics in banking. We went out and surveyed the industry, found out a lot of interesting stuff about how uh, financial institutions are using data analytics, how they plan to deploy it, and all their issues in the implementation of them. Um, and Tanya, what about you? Yeah, so you can find us at um, at Cambridge Altfin. Uh, that is the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance Twitter site. And I think it's quite useful because there you can find uh, a little bit about the research that we're currently doing. We're actually in a uh, field at the moment with our Global Alternative Finance Benchmarking Survey. So if you're a financial technology firm in digital lending or digital capital raising, I really um, hope that you can take a, you know, take a look at it. We've also got um, an event uh, next week. Um, it is uh, in Spanish, um, but it's with um, it's it's with ECLAC, uh, where we're going to be looking at regulatory innovation in Latin America and the Caribbean. We'll be talking about some of the specific COVID findings, um, but with you know specific emphasis on LATAM. Um, and at the start of at the start of April, um, I will be presenting at FinTech LAC um, a project that I worked on with the Inter-American Development Bank on SME access to finance, um, where we've gone out to 600 MSMEs across uh, Latin America to understand why they, you know, why they use financial technology for their financial journey. Um, last but not least, you can find me at Twitter, uh, on Twitter at TNZGLR. Admittedly, I mostly complain about the train and occasionally talk about fintech, um, but you can find me there. And thanks so much. This has been such a joy. Thanks so much for, for coming on. It definitely has been. And uh, for anyone who, who's uh, who listening who wants to find Fintech Futures, uh, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures and on LinkedIn just by searching fintech futures and looking for the two f's are gorgeous logo and if you like this podcast and any of our other episodes then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting service of choice and as always we'd really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by ranting and raving about us online writing a review or recommending us to a friend uh, thank you very much for your support 
Uh, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.